Ukraine is a mess. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. Well, you know, one minute. Come on. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ole Olaker, speaking to you from rainy, foggy Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, from another part of the cloud in Brussels. As we watch 2020 draw to a close, there's a lot to review over the past year, but there's also a lot to think about uh, how 2021 may take shape and what other exciting surprises and adventures await us. So what we've done to talk about all of that is bring in to our conversation, Sir John Sowers. Sir John is the former chief of the United Kingdom Secret Service, MI6. He was in that role from 2009 to 2014, and he also served as the United Kingdom's ambassador to the United Nations. He is now executive chairman at Newbridge Advisory and a senior advisor at Chatham House. Sir John, thank you for joining us. Oh, yeah, it's very nice to be with you. Thank you. So, Sir John, over the course of your career, you've seen these questions of war and peace and threats change. And looking back now, after a year of a great deal of change, after one of the more tumultuous years I can remember, what are you thinking about the trends and how and what we may look be looking forward to in the future? When I look back over my sort of 40 years in international service, during the 80s, it was the Cold War coming gradually to an end with continued sort of proxy wars in places like Africa and parts of Central America. But in the 1990s, things took a different turn. And it started really with the Gulf War in 1991, evicting Saddam from Iraq. But intervention of that sort was really the exception. It was the first time Western forces had seen action collectively like that for several decades. And some of the stories of the 1990s was an era where we didn't intervene enough. We didn't intervene in Rwanda to stop the genocide. We half-heartedly intervened in Somalia and with one helicopter brought down, American forces looked for the exit. We failed in Yugoslavia in the early stages of that to stop the war because we thought we could keep a peace which didn't exist. The tide started to turn towards the end of the 90s with the Kosovo intervention, which was a success in restoring some autonomy and eventually independence to Kosovo, with Sierra Leone, which was a relatively small intervention, but nonetheless uh, very successful. There were interventions by, in a modest way by French forces in different parts of Africa. And by and large, these interventions helped restore order and restore a better governance. But then, of course, in the 2000s, you had the big issues of Afghanistan and Iraq, which changed the narrative about intervention. In the 1990s, the West didn't intervene enough. In the 2000s, we intervened too much. And then, in a sense, there was a flip again when we half-heartedly intervened in Libya and then failed to intervene in any decisive way in Syria, which produced the biggest bloodbath and the biggest casualty rate of any conflict at all. So this has swung back and forth. And the West has sort of intervened in part where we've seen the principles of the liberal order at risk and partly when there's been a threat of a massive humanitarian crisis, which was the case which we failed to stop in Rwanda, was the case in Kosovo, and to some extent was the case in Libya and Syria. We've also focused on where our interests are at stake, and keeping the international order was very much part of the West's interests. That's what drove the intervention in Kuwait. It was also, in some ways, what inspired the intervention in Afghanistan after 9-11, because the Taliban were held responsible for giving al-Qaeda space to operate from there. So in some ways, the big mistake was the intervention in Iraq, where the West overreached. 
where the basis for war was questionable and where the West was deeply divided about what was the right thing to do. And we've seen the consequences since. We can talk about the outcome of Iraq, but I think that experience, in a sense, was the high point of intervention and has coloured the views of Western countries since then about whether or not to intervene. Of course, there have been lots of other wars, and we can talk about the more recent ones, what's happening in Ethiopia now, what's recently happened in the South Caucasus, other conflicts in the world. But I think those were the trends of most of my career. So what you're describing, I mean, just it's really interesting. I also lived through all of this history. What I'm hearing is this notion of Western countries generally choosing their wars, right? It's threats to what they see as the global order or the order as they would like it to be, humanitarian interventions, though obviously not all of them sort of pick and choose. Do you think that's changing? Do you think that existential threats and real threats to the countries themselves are something that the United States and European countries may be starting to worry about in a way they haven't for a long time? I think there's a lot in what you say, Olya. For much of my time as chief of MI6, the biggest concern above all was terrorism, the threat from al-Qaeda, the growing threat from Daesh, ISIS in the Middle East, and some continuing risk of growing risk of right-wing terrorism, as we saw in a number of countries. But actually, I think in the last five or six years, perhaps particularly since the Russian intervention in Ukraine and the arrival of Xi Jinping as president of China, what we're moving towards is much more of a, a great power world where the United States is no longer the single dominant force in the world. It has a near equal rival in China in economic terms. And there are two sort of international systems that are developing. One, which was the one designed by the United States and its European allies after the Second World War. But a second one where China is initially bought into that idea, but is now creating its own set of international values, standards, and it wants countries to be oriented around China rather than to be oriented around the United States. And this is producing a contest between the United States and China, with Russia playing a sort of not very helpful role on the sidelines with a, a weak economy, but a powerful military capability, and medium-sized powers, European powers, India, Japan, you know, are at risk of being squeezed between these two great powers. I'd just like to pick up on your use of force and the choice of conflict. People in Ethiopia, in Azerbaijan, or indeed in Libya or Syria, we see medium-sized powers actually choosing to use force and succeeding. Is that a new dynamic? And where do you think it's going? I think it is something of a new dynamic. I think after the end of the Cold War, we wondered whether there would be state-on-state -state conflicts again. I always thought there probably would be, but the focus very much turned to internal conflict. I think what we're seeing now is as the United States progressively withdraws from parts of the world and the Middle East and uh, is an example of that, as changes take place in countries like Ethiopia, as a country like Azerbaijan becomes more powerful and more military strong as well, some of those old grievances that have lingered for many years, suddenly there's an opportunity to change the ground to some extent by military means in the expectation that the United States, perhaps especially under a Trump administration, are not going to intervene where United States or Western interests are not directly concerned. And I think we are seeing a little spate of wars as countries try and tidy things up in the last few months of the Trump administration, not quite knowing what what's going to come next. I want to come back to that, but I also want to push a little bit on this question of a Chinese world order, what it looks like and how exactly it creates dangers for others. What are we worried about? What are we afraid of? Well, first of all, I don't think we should be afraid of China. They're not 10 feet tall. 
Um, and they're pretty see, big. Uh, they have so many people. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, they uh, uh, they also have they're held back by having a state centred system. They have state sponsored capitalism, which, as we know from the history of the twentieth century, is not as effective as a free market entrepreneur system that we have in the West. So uh, what they do have is a very different political system. And I think in some ways the European Commission, unusually perhaps, captured it very well when they described China as a systemic rival. The system that China is building is a rival to the system that the West has built up. It's partly at home, where you have a system of centralised power, controlled by the Communist Party, a suffocating of criticism and, and even policy debate inside China, a coupled with a surveillance state of a very intensive nature, much greater in some ways than Joseph Stalin was able to impose on Russia, because they do it secretly and quietly, without violence, through uh, control of the streets and the cities of China, through a surveillance technology using big data and facial recognition and so on. So there's a very different system that China is developing at home. They're also developing a different system, which is much more traditionally Chinese, of how it expects other countries to operate towards China. They expect other countries to respect China to pay their due privileges uh, to China. When a country like Australia, whose economy depends heavily on China, exports to China, when it has the temerity to question China and to challenge China, well, Australia must be punished. Australia must be brought into line. And that is a system which is completely at odds with the sort of free market system that the West operates, where you keep the economy separate from political matters as far as you can. And I think that's the difficulty. When you're looking at the export of the Chinese model, I can see that bullying or rising to 10 feet tall against Australia is one thing. But how does it work when it comes to places like Africa? Do you see that China can really export a model there? Can it really have a systemic grip on Africa that others can't? Well, I don't think the Chinese model appeals very greatly to African people. You don't see floods of refugees or economic migrants striving to get into China. They all strive to get into Europe and the United States. It is of concern that countries like Tanzania, and there are other examples as well, are moving in a more autocratic direction, a sort of top-down direction which I think is a challenge. And when you talk about the challenge to Europe, Olio, you were asking me earlier, I think the Chinese conceive themselves primarily as a land power rather than a maritime power. And their focus of attention is the Eurasia landmass. As they see the great power conflict and tensions evolving, they would like to relegate the United States to being, yes, a major power, but a sort of island power separated by two oceans. And they want to see China as the dominant power on the Eurasia landmass. The other end of the Eurasia landmass is us, the Europeans, and uh, we need to be concerned about that. When Europe's economy is slightly bigger than China's, as it is at the moment, we can sort of manage some of these tensions and we don't feel the need to pay tribute to Chinese in economic terms. But what happens if the Chinese economy over the next 30 years achieves uh, Xi Jinping's goals and becomes three, four, five times as big as Europe's economy? Well, then Europe is in the same position as Australia. And we are vulnerable to not so much military pressure, because I don't think that's really how China does things, but an obligation to kowtow to China economically. I think is the position that they want to be in in the Eurasian landmass. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and we are talking to Sir John Sowers about the changing world order. So, Sir John, okay, that's China, and somewhere on this giant landmass, in sort of in between China and Western Europe, is Russia. 
what about Russia is? This idea of Russia as a threat comes and goes. Do you see Russia as presenting real dangers to Europe? Um, and how should Europe respond? I think Russia's, it's a very interesting case. Twice in recent history, in 1917 and again in 1991, the entire Russian state system collapsed in the face of popular protests. And I think it's that risk of a possible third collapse of the Russian system which most preoccupies President Putin. His top priority is to maintain control at home. And that's why he was so exercised and concerned by the so-called coloured revolutions in Ukraine and Georgia, and again in Ukraine in 2014. Because he sees, first of all, he can't believe those things took place without Western intelligence agencies stirring the pot, which actually is not true. But he couldn't conceive that these things would happen without that. But more importantly, he's concerned that the same infection of popular protests and unrest could unseat the Russian system for a third time in just over a 100 years. And I think we need to understand Putin with that as his starting point. He wants to have a system which is stable, which has got a degree of defense in depth, which is why he's so viscerally opposed to Ukraine or Belarus turning to the West rather than being dependent upon Moscow, and why he wants to keep the West relatively weak. He knows that Russia is not particularly strong. The Russian economy is no bigger than that of Spain, but they have military might and they have very effective armed forces and intelligence forces, as we've seen with their interventions initially in Chechnya, but more recently in Syria through the Wagner Battalion in parts of Africa. Well, Chechnya, they did poorly. I mean, Chechnya was a disaster for the Russian armed forces. I think really what we've seen is a tremendous improvement over the course of the last 25 years or so since then. Well, I think Chechnya was the early intervention. It, it was pretty disastrous, brutal, but uh, Putin achieved his goal, both the military goal of re-establishing control and the political goal of making that the starting point of his presidency in Russia. As soon as he had the opportunity, as soon as the oil price rose and there were spare revenues, Putin invested that in modernizing the armed forces and in modernizing and upgrading the intelligence services. And that has been the basis for his power for the last 20 or so years. One thing he's not done, he toyed with this early on. I remember I used to work for Tony Blair as his foreign policy advisor and having meetings with Putin in his early years. Putin was looking at the scope for economic reform banking reform, land reform, uh, modernizing the Russian economy. But I think iron entered his soul in um, 2004 after President Yushchenko won the election in Ukraine and he turned his back on that. I think he's become very dependent upon oil and gas revenues and he's turned his back on modernizing the Russian economy because there are losers as well as winners and this plays into his fear that if there are too many losers in Russian society then you get popular protests and that's the big threat that he must keep at bay and I think we need to understand how he deals with the West and above all how he deals with his near abroad as he calls it through that prism of a weak Russia in decline, a little bit vulnerable, but bristling with anger and aggression if ever it feels its interests are threatened. I mean, I do have to say, just because I write about these things myself, that first, not sure we can call Chechnya an intervention because it's inside Russia. So, I mean, can you intervene within your own country? And second, I really find the narrative of Russian decline a little at odds with history, right? Decline compared to what? Compared to the Soviet Union? Maybe. I mean, it depends on what you look at it. But man, would I prefer to live in Russia now than in Russia in 1976 when my family left. There's a good reason we left, and it was a smart move, right? Um, but especially in 1976. Compare Russia to the 90s, it's spectacular. So yeah, I mean, compared to the boom years when price of oil was high and Russia was spending on everything, including defense, sure, right now the economy has tightened. 
but it's an up and down. And I see Russia as much more in stasis than in decline. And the stasis isn't in that bad a place if you're in Moscow. And they have done a lot of investing in their foreign policy and in their military capabilities, such that even if they're economically in stasis, they've leveraged that into a much stronger position than Russia, independent Russia, has had since the end of the Soviet Union. Well, Oli, I mean, you know Russia better than I do, so I respect very much what you say. The way I would look at it is that Ultimately, a country's power in the world is related to the level of resources it can put in behind power accumulation and power projection. Now, Russia is very good, like America is very good, at accumulating and projecting power. Back in the day, Britain was quite good at it too. There are other countries like India, which are not very good at accumulating power and, and projecting it. Their system and their culture is very different. So Russia still has those instincts of being a great power. And part of the deal that Putin has with the Russian people is we will restore Russia's greatness, even if it means you don't get all the services that you really are looking for in terms of health and education and uh, welfare support. But you have to have an economy which has the prospect of continuing to grow. And I think one of the biggest things happening in the world at the moment is climate change and a move away from hydrocarbons and towards different types of energy. And Russia is vulnerable on that. It won't be the last oil producer in the world. That'll be Saudi Arabia. And as oil demand peaks and gradually declines, and as countries look for different sources of energy, Russia's fundamental economic structure will need to change. And I'm not sure, certainly under the present leadership, it is capable of making those changes. And that's why I say it's not in decline in the sense that it's uh, sort of teetering on the brink. It's No, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, what I'm saying is when you look over the next 20 to 30 years, Russia will need to go through another rejuvenation of its system. And it's not clear to me how capable Russia is of achieving that. So let's actually go over to the United States, right, which the Chinese would like to keep on their island and where an experiment in making America great appears to be nearing its conclusion. Jill Biden looks poised to come into the presidency surrounded by the people he left the vice presidency with. Is he going to return America's role in the world to normal or is there not a normal to return to at this point? Of course, most of us in Europe heaved a huge sigh of relief when it became clear that Joe Biden was going to win the election because a return to civility in politics, a return to valuing friends and allies is really important, especially for us here in Europe. And uh, perhaps I should say, especially in the UK, where we've cut ourselves adrift from Europe. So we need to have an America that we can actually deal with whatever the personal politics may be for Boris Johnson. It's very much in Britain's interest. There is a return to a valuing of alliances and partnerships. You can't turn the clock back entirely, partly because to some extent, Trump has changed America. President Trump might have been defeated in the election, but the ideas behind him and the issues that led to him being elected four years ago are still very much in the minds of half the American population. And for 71 million Americans to vote for a second term for Donald Trump isn't because 71 million Americans love the character of Donald Trump. It's because they continue to feel the anger and grievances that they felt four years ago. So, and I'm talking to you about your own country, so forgive me. But uh, I, I'm in Belgium. I fled. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think um, more than America has changed, Actually, some of the rest of the world has changed, partly because America has shown itself to be a country that perhaps can't be relied upon in quite the way that we thought. 
in uh, either as a, a reliable economic partner, if you're going to have sanctions slapped on you because you have a trade surplus with America, well, that's pretty unreliable. It's sort of like what you described the Chinese policy as being. Well, well, yeah, there's not vast difference. And when the European Union is treated on a par with China in American terms, well, that, that's quite a shock to the European system. Now, certainly for the next four years, there will be a more harmonious relationship between allies. There will be a foreign policy system led by Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken and whoever is appointed as Defence Secretary, which will be much more sort of normal in the way in which it operates. And Joe Biden has a real feel for foreign policy. I think in some ways his temptation will be to move to foreign policy because domestic policy is just too damn hard dealing with the issues that have to be addressed at home. But I think people are not just looking for the next four years. They're wondering what will America's role be in the next 20 to 30 or 50 years? And is that sort of concept of America being relegated to an island power so back to the Monroe Doctrine, we care about the Americas, but not really the rest of the world. The sort of isolationism that defined America from 1776 almost until 1941, when the Japanese jerked America out of its isolationism. And that has been sustained for the last 80 years, thankfully. But actually, the norm in America is not to be involved in the world. And as America's problems intensify at home, it was Barack Obama who said, let's begin nation building at home. And I think that is a very strong spirit in America, as it is here in Britain. That's what drove Brexit in part, was that spirit we need to look after ourselves more than be sort of engaged in the wider world and try and create a better world. But it is dangerous. If you're the threats out there that you don't deal with, they will progressively get closer and closer and closer to you. So you have no choice but to deal with them. Uh, and I think that's a problem that, uh, that Britain will face in Europe and it's a problem that America will face in the world. We started the conversation, Sajan, on the questions that required action or intervention like Somalia, Rwanda and Bosnia, which is in fact why International Crisis Group was originally founded, was statesmen were really scared by these sudden things which came up which they hadn't been expecting. What do you think we're talking about now as major issues that may disappear that we will think ourselves foolish for having been so worried about? Well, first of all, I think we were right to worry about those issues in the 1990s. And I'm very glad that Crisis Group was created to deal with them. It was a British prime minister who, when asked what was the most difficult thing he had to deal with in his time in office, he said, events, dear boy, events. Uh, and that thing about events, things happening. And the biggest thing on Boris Johnson's plate isn't Brexit, it's dealing with a pandemic and the economic recession, which no one could have predicted even a year ago when he became elected as prime minister. So by their very nature, these events are very hard to predict. You can prepare contingencies, you can develop capability to respond, agility to respond quickly. But it is hard to precisely define what's going to happen. I do think that the threats that we've been managing for the last uh, 30 years or so of terrorism, of proliferation, of cyber power, I think these are going to be with us and they're not going to disappear. We're going to have to continue to manage them. I feel to some extent we've got our arms around the terrorism problem. Uh, but mind you, I felt that in 2010-11 as well. And then Syria came along to give another great surge to the terrorist cause, if you like. I think the big challenge we're going to face is we have international order in the physical world. We spent 200 years developing policing and law enforcement at home and an international system with rules about defence and national sovereignty and territorial integrity. The big challenge for the next generation is developing a system of order in the virtual world. So you can hold people to account for what is said and done and transacted, and you can defend yourself also by things that are done in the virtual world through cyber means and on the internet and not just in the physical world. 
Well, that's going to be quite the challenge, I think. And on that forward-looking note, I think we're going to have to end because we are almost at our time limit. But uh, Sir John, thank you so much for joining us. This was really a fantastic discussion. Well, Olia, Hugh, thank you very much for having me on the Crisis Groups podcast. If you would like to read more about Sir John and his work, uh, the Newbridge Advisory website is, conveniently enough, newbridgeadvisory.com. And do check out our website too, crisisgroup.org. There you can read Crisis Group's analysis of global governance and the more than 50 conflicts and crises on which we do research now. You should also follow Crisis Group and Hugh and me on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya Oliker. And also check us out on Facebook and Instagram where we are at Crisis Group. Also, please do feel free to tweet at us about what you like or don't like in the podcast. And we will be paying attention. If you're listening through iTunes, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review as well. We're in Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. Check them out and listen to some of the others. And as usual, we'd like to give a big thank you to producer Bull Media and to Rebecca Zerihun Asifa, who makes sure Olya and I know what we're doing every time we record an episode. And the biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. We're looking forward to chatting with you again soon. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.